Welcome to Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Our very special guest this week is Troy Cassadaly. It's a good time to chat to Troy. Uh, his entire back catalogue is now available for streaming everywhere. He invited me into his home studio, and to paint you a picture, it's crammed with guitars, there's a small drum kit, a recording console. He's a great talker, a great singer, and a natural storyteller. And just to give you some context of what he's achieved, throughout his career, he's got four ARIA awards, 37 golden guitars, nine deadly awards, four Country Music Association awards as Entertainer of the Year, and two National Indigenous Music Awards. But he's a very humble fellow. He really does have a deep, deep love and appreciation for songwriting and the craft and the craft of making records. And we talk a lot about that and we talk about the people he's met and how that's reflected back into his own work. So sit back, have a listen. Here's Troy Cassadaly. <laughs> Roy Cassadaly. Sean Sennett. Thanks for joining us on Time to Talk. It's a very big pleasure for me and good to see you again, mate. Mate, it's such a buzz for me to be in your secret hideaway. <laughs> and it literally has been a hideaway during COVID. You've been locked down in your bunker making music. Yeah, it's been, it's been great for mental health. It's been a little studio that I've come down and, uh, and I haven't done a lot of writing here over the years. I've sort of done more just demo recording. I'd normally go and write, you know, in Melbourne or go and yeah. write in Sydney. Uh, with some friends and then come back here and try and work out what parts work best. But during the, the COVID lockdown, uh, because the first part of it was pretty serious, we had to stay at home. Yeah. It was just a great place for your mental health to come down and, and let it go. So I'm curious, your working day, are you writing songs every day at the moment? Are you demoing ideas? What are you doing? Yeah, pretty much every day um, I'll do what I have to do up in the house, yeah. like whatever the, 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 the requires, whether you're cleaning up or making beds or the same old thing, because Laurel still has been working and doing the radio thing at 4KQ, so it's been a case of just a bit of a groundhog day, which has been pretty interesting, but then I, I normally start an idea up in the kitchen, and then I drag it down here and keep working on it, and it's been really incredible. Before um, it closed down, I was able to get Ian Moss over here, and we were able to sort of plug a couple of guitars in and play... And though I miss those things, I can't wait for those things to come back. But in, in the meantime, you've got to get productive. You're a great uh, collaborator as well as writing on your own. What's the difference with a song when you get an idea? I mean, is there some things you think, I want to take this through to the finish line, and other things do you think, I want to write with somebody like Ian Moss? Yeah, some songs present themselves as ones that are almost done. Uh, a few of them, there was there was one because I hadn't drunk for quite a while before I went into COVID. I think I'd been off the grog for two years. There was one called I, I Almost Had a Drink Last Night. Yeah. And it, it felt to me like, um, you know, it'd be like a more of a Rodney Crowell style song. And I thought, well, yeah. I just need to channel a bit of him and come downstairs and just, just let it fall out of the out of the sky. And that was one I was able to get to the finish line pretty quick. It was like a 20-minute song and it felt like I was finished. But there were other ones where... You know, I battled with them and then I thought, well, maybe this needs, you know, Don Walker or someone might want to be able to have a bit of time to collaborate on something, especially when it's something that's written from the North Coast where we're from. Mm. I thought, wouldn't it be good just to get Don's take on this? So there was this story about this Indigenous woman that could uh, make it rain and she could uh, make storms split and stuff like that in our, in our youth. So I wrote this, this story about it and it became, you know, a really interesting sort of a, a flow 
And then I thought, well, I didn't hear Don Walker on this. I reckon he would just love this because it's from the North Coast. It's from the, the land that he knows. So, yeah, I emailed it over to him. He then comes over here later on in a couple of weeks when he's had time to get to it. And he's there sitting at the piano after, you know, we're able to get away from our distancing stuff. And then he's plugging away. We're doing something, you know, that we've done for years, and that's co-write. And collaborations are really important to make sure the song gets every chance it gets to, to be as, as good as it can be. So I guess the great thing about a, a co-write is that you're getting a completely second shot at where the song's going to end up, how it's going to be resolved. Because it's not your song, it's not Don's song, it's this collaborative piece. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's also its own entity, a song. You know, I, what we give it are just a few of the little tools to get it on its way. And... It was almost one of those songs that could almost write itself, but with, with, with our collaboration, the way we were able to channel where the river was going to run, mm. uh, you're able to then push it in the direction you want it to go, but it's on its merry way, you know. It's like pushing a boat out and mm. letting the wind catch the sail and off you go. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you and Don have got that connection with Grafton. Yeah. That, that's your spiritual home in a way, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, you're always very, very entrenched in where you're from, I, I guess, and in particular being an Indigenous Australian too. You know, my, my Aboriginal family... Uh, always are calling me back mm. and the land does exactly the same mm. the land and the people are exactly the same and you feel just the same I've got a cousin up in Rockhampton at the moment he's my only first cousin in Queensland and he said um, I might have to come down for a visit for a couple of days if it's okay cuz yeah. because um, you're my only mob and I can't get down to New South Wales yeah. I said you just let me know what days you want to be here I'm here <laughs> there's a great bit in your book which I really enjoyed um, when I think one of Laurel's friends warns her that you could just wander off any time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she got the warning. And um, I think she got the morning. Uh, the, the, the morning. Well, she's getting the morning now. <laughs> um, she, she got the warning early in the piece about, uh, you know, just the fact that I was a musician. Mm. I think her folks are a little bit worried. But, you know, she knew what she was doing. I think, you know, love's love. And even though I was sort of half living out of my car and half living down the North Coast, New South Wales, I think she understood that I had a good work ethic, you know, but her friends did say, yeah, possibly just walk off, because I was pretty itchy-footed at the time. I was living between the North Coast, Maryborough, and then back down to Tamworth, and I had a little network of bands. So when she met me, yeah, I was pretty nomadic, but I was ready to settle down. Yeah, it's great when you read your book too. I know it came out a couple of years ago, but if anybody hasn't read it, it's definitely worth a read. All those great bands you're in, Little Eagle, they've all got cool names. <laughs> I've got a feeling one was called Southern Comfort or something. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was only, we only called ourselves Southern Comfort because one night we played this really dodgy little pub and they had a sponsorship night on that night of Southern Comfort, the drink, and they were giving out these white, uh, you know, spray jackets. Yeah. And we thought, why don't we just get three of those and that'll be our band name and we can wear them to the gig before we play. It was so daggy. But then we realised, obviously, there could be copyright. You know, I remember years ago going to a show and the band were really good. They were smoking. And I turned to this lady next to me and said, what's this band called? And she looked at the, the stage and went, oh, they're called Gretch. <laughs> <laughs> Was it on the drum kit? On the drum oh, kit, I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I, I think your history really does define you a lot mm. when you look back. And I do keep a car like I keep now for that history. Um, at the time when I was in Little Eagle, I was driving an EH. And, and when I get in there, I'm transported a little bit, so it's still good to feel like you're connected. It's interesting. When I read the book, the EH or a car or a train, they are really the co-stars of your whole story, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're the, definitely the co-stars. And, and they're, they're definitely the, the things that uh, got me into 
being able to do what I had to do with music. I, I, I love to travel mm. and being able to get on a train or mm. uh, get in a bus or get in that car and drive wherever I had to go. I never saw it, even if I had no money, I never saw it as being a, a hassle. Yeah. I always saw it as being, right, this is the next adventure. Yeah. Um, I get to play with this different set of players. I had me strat with me or a telly whatever I could afford at the time. Normally just had an electric and acoustic and a little boss pedal kit. And um, and it was an adventure. You literally have been everywhere, man. Yeah. I mean, I look at Close. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're on the road and uh, is there a thrill of going to a place you haven't been to before? If there's anything left you haven't seen in Australia? Oh, it, it still happens, you know. I still get to go to places where I think, wow, I don't think I've ever been here. Mm. And the, the, the laughing joke in our lounge room normally is um, if there's a Queensland-wide news that we're watching or there's a national news we're watching, and I'll mention some town. Laurel goes, have you been there? And I go, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, oh, have you played there? Well, I haven't played there, but I've driven through there. And, and I still get a kick out of discovering new places, and, and it still happens. I mean, sometimes you go to far north Queensland, you'll get a person that takes you to some place, you think, wow, I've never been off this beaten track in particular. I've always gone straight up to Weeper, but to get dragged off to uh, Arakoon or Laura is a, is a thrill. Mm. What's it like for you? Because you've obviously taken your music overseas. you played the Opry. Yeah. What's it like taking your story overseas? Look, one thing that, that, that dawned on me early in the piece, the first time I played Opry was back in the mid-90s sometime, and they get it. Mm. They just the, Country music's country music. They don't, they don't really qualify you as being, you know, someone that really can't have the right to sing about it because it was born in, in America. Uh, they just get the story. They get the, the narrative. Whatever you're bringing there, they get it, and they just appreciate it. Mm. And I think that, that when you get to know people over there like I have over the last 25 years, I think you get to see the connection runs real deep between if you've listened to a Merle Haggard record here, it's no different to a 50-year-old bloke listening to a Merle Haggard record living in Muskogee, you know. We all are connected. I remember the first time I saw you play was when the first album came out. Right. And I'm pretty sure they had a gig up at Paddington in Brisbane. That's it. it might have been a record launch. Yep. And I remember two things. I thought... Obviously, great singer. That goes without saying. Great player of the Telecaster. The oh. telly's your thing. And Ray Martin turned up. I know. Which was the weirdest it was thing. The, it was. It was <laughs> I hardly knew Ray then. And the thing is, yeah, he must have just got the invitation from Sony. And, and I remember there was a band on with me, that, one of the ones I played in Brisbane here called Skunk Hour. Ah, right. And, and what a pairing. <laughs> a hip-hop, sort of like a funk group with a, a country artist that were both on the same label, you know. And and a lot of people, Sean, were at that launch who I still catch up with today and say, I, I just remember the first time I saw you play. And it, it, it's always mind-blowing when you get taken back to a, a moment. Yeah. But that was definitely a moment here in town for me. That was, that was a great, great gig. And, <laughs> and and back then, we're talking, what, 95-ish maybe? Yeah, 95-ish, yeah. yeah. And the fact that, you know, uh, the gold Loki winning Ray Martin descended... I and know. it was so charming that night meeting everybody. It kind of gave the night a bit of it, an yeah, extra bling. It definitely had some star power, that's for sure. And um, But but what a great way to launch. We did those launches in every city. Mm. Um, Sony went to the trouble of making sure that I could take my band and we did little three-piece launches everywhere. And I still remember all the reps in each town mm. as being the nicest people because I, here I was, I was like 25, and... I was, I was embarking on this career. It was the first time I'd really had a recording available. And 
I was being treated so beautifully in each of the states. Mm. And they are all people that have still remained in the industry in some fashion, like one of the blokes that was working at the Adelaide branch, I still see. And it's just amazing where you cross paths with them again because they're survivors as well. Looking back to that night, as I said, one of the things that struck me was your Telecaster. Yeah. Now, I, I really associate the Telecaster with you. And this kind of goes back, is it Roy Nichols, the Roy, uh, yeah, Mel Haggard's guitar band, player? Yeah, yep. Big influence on you? Yeah, big influence. Uh, I, it was only later that I realised that people like Keith Richards and people like that played tellies as well. But my, my first real focused thing was Roy Nichols out of Mel's band and also Buck Owens and Don Rich. They were both Telecaster people in, in, in my family mm. that I listened to. And I kept listening to what they were up to. And I think that's where you learn your chops. You know, you start to, to pick up what you want to pick up then. And then Pete Anderson came along later on with Dwight Yoakam, and he was someone that just influenced a lot of uh, guitar players as well on the telecaster, that's for sure. James Burton was a great telly player, wasn't oh, he? he was amazing. Well, still is, I guess. Well, a lot of the times he was playing on Merle's stuff when we always thought it was Roy. Ah. So they mixed and mingled because uh, he obviously you know, had, had worked with Elvis. I mean, mm. Merle held that in very high regard, but he was also an incredible country chicken picker. So a lot of the country stuff that Merle cut in LA, James was playing on as well. So we were sitting there thinking we were learning some Roy Nichols licks, but they were actually James Burton as well. So definitely a big influence on a lot of people. And you're a big fan of uh, Texas Swing, aren't you? Lefty Frizzell? Yeah, love. Spade Cooley? Spade, Spade Cooley, Cooley. To, a, to a point, I, I sort of stuck to... The Western Swing that I really, really got into was Bob Wills, mm. and I think it was through a couple of old guitar players in, in my band at Tamworth that got me onto them, and I just fell in love with Eldon Shamblin's playing, I, I, even though he was playing this really, really old second second Strat ever made, I think it was, and Leo had given it to him as a gift to take on the road to test out whether it was going to last, because it was this new fandangle thing after the, the telly that he designed. And listening to he him play with Bob Wills, I, I fell in love with Western Swing as well. And Stewie French, an old mate of mine, uh, who's been around for a long time, was in my band, and he was heavily influencing me at the time on that sort of thing. And talk about learn a lot of stuff, and that's why I started that that name Tex Dubbo. Now uh, Tex Dubbo is an alias that I, I had since I was living in Tamworth in 1993, and it was an old Paul Hogan. Uh, character that he made up. Oh, was it? <laughs> and I was nicknamed that. Tex Dubbo. Tex Dubbo. So look it up. Yeah. And uh, it became a bit of a, an alias to, to let it be an outlet for me to play just trad country, nothing of my own, yeah. but just to get back and play the stuff that I started learning in front of the record player. And that's that's been a... One day I'll probably be doing Tex Dubbo records down here, I'd say, because it's getting to that point where... Oh, I hope so. You know, you can, you can get a couple of gun players over, yeah. get a double bass in the corner and do it all live... Mm. And, um, and that's the goal, and to be able to share that music with everyone as well. There's a lot of people that haven't heard uh, a lot of trad country and a lot of people that think they've heard it, but until they hear it properly, uh, sometimes they feel like, oh, I've just discovered something brand new. A lot of kids do anyway. Mm. With your music, um, obviously it's all been released online now, so every record you've ever made is up there, yeah. you know, on the various streaming platforms. Your voice has matured so much. You've got so rich in timber. <laughs> It must be a joy for you to investigate the fact that you sing differently now. Oh, definitely. The I tone's mean, so different. Yeah, I, I, I listened to the first first record and the, the, even the first little single I had uh, prior to Sony signing, and I played it for my daughter one morning and she started to cry. And I said, what are you crying for? She said, you sound like Clay, my son, when he sings. And that was when he was like 19. And, yeah, you, you, you definitely 
look back on the years of, of recording uh, Sony you know sent me to Nashville to do a record on the second outing and and that was a huge thing but even from those records there's still a little progression and you, you hope that you want to be like a wine that hopefully gets better with age as you sing and you get a little bit more aware of what you do and how you your, your shape, your tone. It's like working out how to get a sound out of a Fender amp. There's always tweaking, you know, and I think your voice is no different to that. So you never just happen across these sounds. You're always looking for another sound. It, well, you know, I mean, my sound this week might be different next week mm. on guitar. Mm. Not drastically different, but there's always little things you do to change it up, and, and I think your voice is exactly the same. I mean, the last couple of gigs we did at the Trifford, to be able to play just to an audience after maybe five months off is it's really quite beautiful an experience. And the first thing I said when I got to the first gig, I said, I'm never going to take this for granted again. Mark my words. Mm-hmm. I know we've only got 180, 150, whatever was allowed in there. I said, so it's, it's something I'm never going to take for granted again. It's just playing in front of you people. So thanks for coming. <laughs> in terms of the future, obviously we hope there's a lot more gigs for you. Um, a new album, you're going to record that, what, this year, next year? I was supposed to be in the studio this week, Yeah, believe wow. it or not. I was supposed to be in Jimmy Barnes' freight train studio at Botany uh, this week and re- supposed to be recording right up till today. I was supposed to fly home from Sydney. But everything changed. Sydney went back into lockdown. Uh, then I would have had to go on into two weeks uh, mm. isolation when I came back. Mm. So that was all knocked on the head. And then we tried for Byron Bay to try and get up to Bernard's place. And, and Nick's, and that sort of fell over too because I'd still have to isolate once I went over the border. So I've got 21 songs now. Just finished another one yesterday. And they're burning a hole in my pocket, like, <laughs> like a two-bob that you want to go and buy some lollies with. And, and that's, that's been frustrating, but it's been also a bit of a, a godsend too because I can probably go ahead and spend another month writing now because I'm, I'm in the zone to write. So if I'm going to come down here every day and try and write something that's going to stick... Um, I may have too many songs, but it's not bad to have it down to 13 of the best things you can possibly put on the table. You could be doing a Human Touch and Lucky Town before we know it. <sighs> I hope I don't. But it was look, a spaghetti incident for uh, Guns N' Roses, right? Yeah. One and two. Yeah. I mean, who, I've never made a double record. Maybe it's time. But, but, but who's to say that something better can't fall out of this experience too? When you get down here, sometimes I'll start an idea on just playing the kick drum and playing the guitar. The last thing I got got together was with a young young lady in Sydney, Loz Benson, her name is, and she's a drummer, but she's got this little solo side career as a singer, and I really like what she's up to. It's it's quite haunting. It's sometimes it's a little outlawish, and I said, look, I'd like to try and write a song with you. You know, we're in different cities. Doesn't matter. We can do this via email, and that was the last thing I I wrote finished yesterday was the fact that it was just a thing started on the drums it's about a like a bonnie and clyde it's sort of like that tom jode sort of style thing with highway 29 mm-hmm. that that's one of my favorite sort of eras of springsteen too yeah. and and i said i want to make this creepy i want to make sure there's blood and there's crime you know so it was great to have a chance to write that well, well the atmosphere you created with shadows on the hill i mean but, that's a film isn't it oh yeah yeah yeah, look, I mean, Shadows came out of, you know, a really, really sad time. We're losing our, our cousin who was dying of cancer. And, and when you get inspired by going back on country um, and then you hear a story like Shadows on the Hill from your, your last surviving uncle, uh, 
it, 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 if you don't write a song out of that, then mm. you just don't even have a heart. Mm. So all the way home, the song just wrote itself. Mm. All I did was just was, was the vessel to, to write it out and sit down here. I plugged into these speakers and let the song fall out, you know, and, and it, it was so spiritual to me to not only have it as my story from my family, but then to make it our story as Australians. It's part of the truth-telling that I, I'm, I'm happy to be a little part of, mm. And it's, it's going to bring a lot more people together than it's going to divide because the truth is the truth. I mean, no one's making this stuff up. You've got a great way of uh, getting the truth into your songs in various lines. And sometimes it's big picture stuff like that. And then other times it's like home with breaking the clothesline. Yeah. I mean, what kid didn't feel that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, and there's, there's things that should unite us. There's, there's memories, I think, in there that, that really should make us all feel like we're a part of the same people. Mm. And it's pretty important to me. And it's, it has been since I first signed with Sony. They said, what do you want your first single to be? And I said, look, dream out loud. You know, I've still got the dig somewhere in the corner here that I played on the track. Uh, it's never, never drifted too far from me. And they said, oh, you know, what, what do you feel strongly about this single? I said, well, it's about bringing people together. And it's the funniest thing, but, you know, to give an artist the choice mm. at the time was, mm. was, to me, really important. And it's a song that's followed me around like an old friend and we get requests for it all the time. And it's a song of unity, you know. Unity is not such a bad thing. You mentioned a couple of key words there while we're talking that sort of made me think of something, the ditch yeah. and outlaws. Yeah. So I think of you and Willie Nelson in a room. I'm assuming the air isn't too clean. <laughs> no, the air isn't too clean. And, and once again, uh, we get this offer of five shows to, to tour with the Highwaymen. And um, someone at Sony had rung me that morning and said, look, we've got this thing cooking up. It, it possibly can come off. They've just approved that you do the five shows and they like what you're doing. And I hung the phone up and just punched the air and went, you, I can't believe this. I've got all these blokes' records at home, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash. And um, why wouldn't you say yes? And then I get the phone call. It was like an hour later from the bloke at Sony as well. And he said, oh, look, there's been changes, you know. And I thought, oh, no, that's, the whole thing's fallen over. Yeah. Every show in, in the capital cities have, have sold out so quick, they're doubling the shows. So now what was five has turned into ten shows. So we had a day off in each town. And sitting with Willie on the second last show, and he had worked out that I was the only bloke on the whole trip that could play didgeridoo. He'd bought one at the airport. He said to his, uh, his minder, I want you to buy me one of those Indigenous things. He said, that there is the oldest instrument in the world, he said. He even got that, you know. Wow. So he had this store-bought one in the corner and um, he summons me down and I knocked on the door and it was, it was the bluest smoke I've ever seen in a room. It was chock-a-block. I could barely breathe. And then um, he said, well, go on, son. I said, I believe you're the only man that's qualified to play that thing. So he said, there it is. And I said, okay. So... I had a good go on it for him and he could not believe how long because I could circular breathe. But at the same time, I was breathing in all this smoke and I'm going, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> when I stopped playing after about two or three straight minutes, yeah. I was circular breathing for him and he, he said, man, how long can you blow on that thing? I said, Willie, I was going to ask you the same question, brother. I said, because <laughs> I can't breathe in here. <laughs> he had this Bob marley size uh, joint. You, you, I've never seen anything like it, but it was just going as – this is before he was going on stage, by, mind yeah. you. And it was just, you know, so cruisy, and he was mesmerised by the sound of the ditch. Yeah. He couldn't believe it. So, you know, for him to – he may even remember that. Yeah. I, 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 I've never forgotten it, but um, it was just one of those moments in time that I've been burned in my memory, you know. 
Well, speaking about moments in time, and um, we mentioned guitars. I remember, I think Reggie Young was the guitar player on that tour. He sure was. What a player. Great. Oh. All those Elvis records he's on. And oh, Dobie Gray. Yeah. My goodness Fantastic. me. Fantastic. And, and he was a blowout because he was such a humble bloke. Him and the steel player, Robbie Turner, they were all just really, really affable people. They weren't stars, but they were to us. Mm. And James Gillard, who pulled me aside, who was my bass player at the time, he said, do you know what Reggie Young's played on? And I said, I know he played on some some bits for Elvis and bits and pieces. I said, because I've read about him. And he said, go and listen to Drift Away by Dobie Gray and then come back and tell me. I said, well, I've already heard it. He said, I said, don't tell me that's him playing guitar at the front of that. He said, that's him all over it. And he was, he was the sort of bloke that would invite you for a cup of tea three years later when you are in Nashville. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. And it's... It's, it's not not normal. Yeah. Not normal at all. They were all incredible people to be around. And Waylon Jennings was such a hard nut to crack. Everyone had to call him Chief. Really? Yeah, it wasn't Waylon. Right. It was Chief. Right. That was his name. And he was – we were doing a sound check in Newcastle and he was, he was worried about the sound that was coming through. He was the only one that was on an FM receiver for his telly. And um, he asked me to hold his guitar while he went back and looked at his amp because we were sitting at soundcheck in front of his wedges. And he didn't care. He could have told us to piss off. Yeah. He didn't care. And he said, here, hold this, son, and give me this Telecaster. And I looked at it and I thought, this is the guitar, or one of them, yeah. one of his leather-bound things. Yeah. And it was weighty and amazing, worn out looking, all, yeah. the, all the neck was worn out. And he came back and he said, thank you, son. He, he took it back and he said, I think I'm going to – he said, why, why is my, my noise crackling like this? And the sound man says, look, I think it's the ships in the harbour in Newcastle waiting to come in. And he said, well, blow the damn things up. <laughs> <laughs> They're interrupting me, you know. And it was, it was so funny. And that, that day I asked him about a song that his wife had written for him because we were such good friends after he handed me the guitar. I thought, why not? I'm yeah. going there. I said, Jesse Calder wrote this song for you. Um, and I told him the song. It was called Mona. And, and he said, you know, I recorded it once and she listened to it and she said, it's not yours. So I waited for another 10 years and recorded it again and played it for her and then she said, it's now yours. So he loved the fact that I knew about his songs intimately like that, you know. Now, I've heard a rumour too, you managed to get close to Trigger as well, talking about guitars. Yeah, yeah, during many sound checks. Now, we should say what Trigger is for people that may uh, not know. It's yeah, Willie Trigger's, Nelson's, yeah. I think, I think it's about a 66, Martin. I, I think that's when he might have got it. And it was the first time that Willie went from a, a steel string onto a nylon string, and that pretty much became his sound. Mid-60s, he picked this thing up. And he played and played and played it, and it's 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 the the guitar associated with Willie Nelson. It's got the big hole in the front. Um, you can see the bracing even through the the soundboard of the guitar, and it had a personal bodyguard who looked like a Hell's Angels bikey, and he would travel with it in its case. Wow. It had its own seat in the plane going over to Perth, going from Sydney to Melbourne, had its own seat, and I I became friendly with this big bikey bloke and just said, "You're." Trigger's bodyguard. He said, yep. He said, if Trigger don't make it, I don't make it. <laughs> he said. <laughs> and, um, and we were laughing about it. So we got to the, the second sound check and he was really nice fellow. And he said, if you want to play it, feel free. He said, I'm standing right here. I went, you're kidding me. He said, go on. Amazing. And he said, plug it into the amp. Because wow. the amp had a system in it that phantom powered his pickup. So he, he couldn't play his guitar plugged in without this amp. So 
it was some old setup that he had years and years ago, which once again was his sound. So he switched the amp on for me. He knew how to do it. His only jobs were to look after Trigger and bring Willie Black Coffee on stage. And um, to play that thing, Sean, wow. The years that yeah. – the things that have been written on it. Yeah, yeah. And as I strummed it, it just resonated through me, like any old guitar does. Yeah. But this thing just had so much volume for its age. And and I'll never forget it as long as I live. And this, this bloke was so nice to let me do that. So that's an incredible experience. In fact, I think there's even a documentary just made about Trigger. Oh, they'd have to the be. The story. Because I think he had it signed by everybody he's met, right? I looked around the guitar. I, I saw things on there that I couldn't believe that were just signatures from everyone. Yeah. And he didn't mind them scratching it in or mm. or writing it in mm. pen, but he mainly asked them to scratch it in so it stayed because pen rubbed off. Yeah. And there was Waylon and there was everyone else. Obviously, the, you know, Johnny Cash and everyone was all over it, but there was Towns Vans here. Just... Just some incredible people had scratched their names in it. Even his old drummer, Paul, you know. Mm. <laughs> me and Paul. Yeah, me and Paul. Well, I mean, he, you could see Paul written in it, and I thought, well, that's the only Paul he'd have scratch his name in it. So, yeah, look, I mean, I, I have to say it's through Sony's tenacity that I was put on these shows as an early at an early age of my career. And Dennis's passion for me, mm. uh, he understood exactly where I needed to be. But what he didn't realise was at the time, which I hope he does now, but I think what he didn't realise was that he was fulfilling dreams for me as a young kid growing up, Indigenous kid growing up in the middle of 100 acres of, of, of ground on the North Coast who'd listened to these artists intimately. Now he was he was putting this piece with that piece for me and, and making a huge connection with me getting to, to play with them, let alone meet mm. them. And, um, and if it wasn't for Dennis and his drive to get me there, I think that's probably what drew me back to the company in the first place yeah. too, was, oh, God, they just gave me so much that I still look around my room now. I can I went over to see Johnny Cash's um, museum and the Highwayman poster with my name on it is still in his museum. Oh, wow. What an ex- what a, I get people, yeah, you know, yeah. once every couple of months yeah. when you're allowed to travel going through Johnny's museum saying, I saw your name, I've got a photo, I saw your name on a Highwayman poster because if it wasn't for Dennis and Sony, I wouldn't have been there. So fast-forwarding to now, as you said, you've got 20-odd songs in burning a hole in your pocket. Now, for those people that might be curious about how records made, what happens with narrowing that down to 12 songs? Is this something where you trust yourself 100% or do you have key people like Laurel or other people you play them for and they go, that has to be on the record? Oh, look, it's a process and it changes, you know. I mean, I've self-produced for the last uh, three or four records mm. and loved it, but I've enlisted Matt Fell on this next record because I just wanted another set of ears. Someone that can be crueler mm. on the choices of songs and someone that can take this in a little bit more of a different direction than I would, you know, because if I sit in a room and I've got Michael Rhodes playing bass and I've got Brent Mason playing guitar and Eddie Bayers on the drums and you don't have to really produce those blokes, you know, you can sort of put a chart in front of them and they'll play the phone book. But with with this particular thing, Laurel's going to have a hand in it. Uh, My manager, Roxanne Brown, she's been across it as well. She's got the Dropbox with the 20 songs in there already and... Laurel's got the Dropbox, but she hasn't opened it. That's the trick. I'll have to force her to listen to them. <laughs> and then she'll have uh, opinions about it. And because we're husband and wife, of course, we're going to di- disagree on certain things. But Matt, I think, will be the toe cutter. And you need that. 
and if, if that's going to be a case of getting it down to the 13 mm. best tunes out of what I've got at 20, um, I'm going to challenge myself to write a few more so I've got 25 maybe, you know. Still need to get it down to th- uh, 13. When I hear your records, there's so much life and energy in them. So I'm assuming you like to record quickly? You don't like to do a million takes? Oh, I hate doing a million takes. I think the spontaneity in the first two takes is always the best. Mm. And as I get older too, I think you get more impatient because if you're going to sit down – when I was younger, I was I was probably doing, you know, five, six, ten takes of each song. Mm. But you get to the stage where you know it's just a waste of energy. Mm. You know, you've you really got to make sure that the band feel like it's the first time they've heard it. And when a song's born with a band – that's when the spontaneity happens. And if, you, if you've got a good drum track out of it, you can fix anything else. As long as the drummer's into it and you can go back and go, right, you can walk out and go, that was a great take. Mm. The drummer, you say to the drummer, if he's playing to a click track, which sometimes I hate too, but sometimes it gives you the opportunity to go back and fix a drum part if he's not happy with a tiny bit, or you get the first or second take, that's it for me. That's where the magic is. Do you turn up at the studio with, you mentioned these demos in the Dropbox, everything signed off on? Are you open to changing things when you get into the room? Oh, yeah. Look, um, I think having a producer is great for that. They might have some some alternative arrangement things they might be looking at. Um, it might be something to do with an intro or a solo form or whether the solo form can be changed to more of a verse or instead of it just being over a chorus. Um, they can also say, hey, have you got a spare half hour to go and write a little bridge for this thing? It may need a bridge. I'm into that too because I, I love – the one thing I've realised in this last uh, six months of being locked down with no shows is that you can change stuff. You know, don't feel precious about something that your art's being compromised. It's mm. not. Well, what do you think about this incredible uh, rise of Americana in the last uh, 20 years? Because the heroes you spoke about, the original Outlaw guys, and now – you know, I remember when the Highwaymen played mm. – Getting a city kid to go see a country show was almost impossible, whereas now it's the reverse, right? Oh, look, the Americana thing was born out of those mm. those people. Willie Nelson was was someone who was writing incredible, very well-thought-out songs, but he could also write a commercial hit. I mean, when you can write things like Hello Walls or Crazy, they were commercial hits of the day, and that's how he paid the bills. But there were things he was writing for himself uh, – where you, you, you sit down and listen to those lyrics and you think that that's he's got songs that have things in the verses that anyone would hang their hat on as a hook line, but this is a verse line for Willie, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it, he's that good. So I, I've been heavily influenced by Americana artists without even knowing it. Now, with this new record, it, it, it definitely is going to be a, a very Americana record. Inadvertently, by listening mm-hmm. to the old stuff that I grew up mm-hmm. with, I've gone full circle and gone, I'm going back to have a listen to that, but I've also gone back and listened to Stevie Ray Vaughan. To me, if you want to look at Americana and where the branches lead, yeah. take them back to Austin. Yeah. Take them back to, to places where songwriters have been revered. You know, don't just sit them in, in Nashville. Mm. Take them back down south. Get down to where Jason Isbell's from, you know. Take them into Alabama and, and the places where, you know, things were, stories were being cut that were never big hits, but hell, they are incredible stories that have stood the test of time. So I've, I've gone from those places and taken the, the branches back, and it's been incredible because, you know, I, I've listened to just as much to Stevie Ray Vaughan as I've listened to Willie, Willie Nelson. The thing that impresses me about your writing is uh, I hear a song like Freedom Riders, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, where's this going? Then I hear Charlie Perkins mentioned, yeah, and I think that's powerful. 
you know, that sends the chills up the, the spine when I hear that. And I wondered what influence people like uh, Shane Howard and Rumpy Band had on you when you were a kid growing up. Oh, huge. I mean, um, where's my poster? There's Shane Howard's uh, poster there when I went and saw them live one day in, in Tamworth. And there's a picture of Charlie Perkins there. The first thing Don Walker pulled up and looked at and and gazed at for about five minutes without saying a word was that picture of him being arrested at the Moree Pool. Charlie um, was a big influence on me mm-hmm. as a kid, and so was Shane. So was a rumpy band, Neil Murray. I read his book last Christmas, which isn't even available anymore, which is crazy. And uh, I think one of the, my record company blokes had given it to me and just to have a read before I sent it back. And I'm, I'm fascinated with them still. I'm still fascinated with Shane Howard. Mm. He's like one of those old horses, the old stallions that runs around you never get a bridle on. Mm. And um, uh, all my heroes are very similar to that. And I was heavily influenced by Shane and Goenna as a young Indigenous kid because I, I heard them play and we were playing in live bands at the time, but his music gave me a home. It gave me uh, a truth-telling and the right to sing about what, I want to sing about. And here's a, a white Irish descent guy who has a heart as big as this country uh, singing about uh, solid rock and singing about travelling stockmen on that record, that uh, beautiful record as, as well, Spirit of Place. And it became a bit of a, uh, just a piece of my fabric. It was on every shirt that I'd wear almost, that record. And it was through him and through the Rumpy Band, the early recordings I heard of the Rumpy Band and then the later ones, that I realised that it's it's okay to speak about your people. It's okay to speak about incidents that happened. Paul Kelly said to me, he said, we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of this Freedom Ride, you know, and we knew full well it needed some celebration. So we wrote that song and, and talked about Charlie's, just the way he invigorated people around him, the way he was an agitator, but he was doing it the right way. He wasn't doing it violently. He, he was, you know, totally mm. arrested in a peaceful way at the Moree Pool, but it was the scorching hot day, 40-degree heat in Moree, that he was, all he wanted was to bring the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous kids from Sydney Uni to have a swim. Mm. And they said, I'm sorry, but if the black kids here can't swim, the black kids on that bus can't swim here either. And that was a, a, a worldwide news event, mm. Moree. And those influences are... I'm very fortunate to be able to tap on Paul's door and and try and break those motors down and rebuild it into something that people Mm. might want to get in and go for a ride with, you know? Well, I'm very impressed with your writing. I remember years ago reading an interview with James Rain. He said, I don't want to sing about Memphis. I want to sing about a tram in Bondi. Yeah. And you bring the Australian sense of place into your work. I I try to, yeah. And I I, I mean, we're we're all influenced by those things from Memphis. Mm. You know, that's the the reality of it. That's the musicality, but you want to put your Australian story in there, right? And that's all going to come from the spoken word. Yeah. And, you know, I did a school project on Charlie Perkins, which changed my life. It was one of the first A pluses that I got. And not only was it about someone that I didn't know much about, I did after I finished the project, but I didn't realise he was the first Indigenous bloke to go through Sydney Uni and get a degree. Uh, a lot of people who hear that story on stage have never hardly heard of Charlie Perkins. Mm. Um, they don't know what Rachel's doing at the moment with the way she's going ahead with filmmaking and, and breaking new ground, keeping her song lines alive from Alice Springs at the same time as raising a kid. Uh, they're just people that deserve to have a spotlight on them. And if, if that uh, way of making it an Australian story comes through song... That's your little part of the truth-telling. It's your little part of keeping us all together. And it's, a, it's all a part of moving forward. 
Troy, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciated talking to you, and I can't wait to hear your new record. Oh, Sean, it's been a pleasure. Great to see you face-to-face. I had a beard very similar to yours during COVID too, but I had to get rid of it. And I just want to say thanks to Sony for giving me a home um, after all these years for a 51-year-old bloke to come back to where he started. It's not only full circle, but I've got a record that's going to make him proud. Fantastic, mate. I can't wait to hear it. Cheers, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. A uh, big thanks to Troy Casadaly for joining us this week on Time to Talk. Troy's entire back catalogue is now available for streaming everywhere. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you back here again very soon. <laughs>